probably not the first one, but I do want to wish you a uh, happy Father's Day. Beyond that, I want to express my appreciation, Ron, to you and the choir and Simon as the accompanist and and Valerie as well for uh, a great choir season, 10 months of faithful, uh, diligent work, rehearsals every Wednesday evening, extra rehearsals before special occasions. Yeah, good work. So... You know, folks, there's a ton of ministry that goes on throughout the week that we just are not aware of. Many, many of you are involved in ministry in all kinds of ways. Some are public, but many, many of them are behind the scenes. But they are no less valuable and used of God for the advancement of His great and glorious work here. And so um, we just appreciate all that you've done. Open your Bibles to uh, Titus chapter 2. If you would, please, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in the pew wrap in front of you. Page 1193, you would find the second chapter of Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 2. These past ten weeks, we've been looking at the high and holy calling of eldership. We have spent considerable amount of time detailing what the Scriptures have to say about this. We began by noting that uh, servanthood is the basis of all true spiritual leadership. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so to emulate him, it begins with a servant's heart. And so servanthood is the basis of all leadership. We've also spent a fair amount of time in this study over these last 10 weeks. And we're not done, by the way. We've got plenty more to go, but... What we've been looking at so far, we have noted that the, uh, the character requirements for leadership in God's church are very high. They are very high indeed, but by God's grace, He puts it upon certain men's hearts to, to uh, pursue after these and um, moves them into positions of spiritual leadership. Last week, we learned also that it is a joint ministry, Right? that we are harnessed together in the work that goes on here through Foothill Bible Church. It is not just the elders alone, but it is all of us harnessed together first in the practicing of the one another's among the congregation here and then carrying the load of evangelism and discipleship as well. Well, this morning we are turning the spotlight of the Word of God onto the wives of elders. We are looking this morning at what Scripture has to say about the wives of elders, and we are asking and hopefully answering a question, what are elders' wives supposed to be like? What is an elder's wife supposed to be like? You know, all around us, the culture bombards us, doesn't it? Through the media, through television, radio, print media, and so forth, we are bombarded with images of what it means to to be successful. And when it comes to uh, womanhood, one of the things that bombards us is the whole issue of sensuality. It is continually, it is used in the advertising media to try to sell things. And so our culture is just awash in sensuality. Many women find themselves carried along in this tide to one degree or another. But let me bring you just a word here of of, uh, counsel and admonition from the Scriptures You know, the writer to the Proverbs said, Proverbs 31, verse 30, that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. When we talk about what it means to be a woman of excellence, we are talking about a woman who understands the deceitfulness of charm and the vanity of beauty, but understands deep in her heart that the fear of the Lord, that is what God is after. We have a tremendous example for us given in the book of Ruth. There, located in the third chapter, Ruth's future husband, Boaz, makes an interesting statement. He says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. All the people in the city know that she is a woman of excellence. Well, this morning we are on a mission. 
We are on a mission together, and the mission is to locate women of excellence. We are looking for women of excellence. And Paul gives us in this text in Titus chapter 2, he gives us 11 key characteristics to look for so that we will know a woman of excellence when we see one. Paul gives it to us. There are 11 of them. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let me just read this chapter for us and set the background. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponents may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of our God, of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus." who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The background here in this letter that Paul writes to his co-worker in ministry, Titus, is that... Titus had been left by Paul on the island of Crete. Some evangelistic work had been done. Believers had been won to the Lord. Churches had been planted. And Paul leaves Titus there as he, as he tells us in verse 5 of chapter 1 to set in order that which remains, to, to bring organization and, and godly discipline to the church. And he tells uh, Titus here that, he, that one of the things that he has got to be most concerned about is the false teachers Verse 11, chapter 1. The false teachers who are, who are coming in and they are teaching things they, they should not teach. And they are upsetting whole families, he says in, in verse 11. And so Titus is to counteract this false teaching. This cultural phenomena on the island of Crete that is trying to snuff out the life of the church. And so the Apostle Paul writes to Titus and he tells him that he is to, he is to speak the truth. Chapter 2, verse 1. Speak these things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Do you see that? The antidote that Paul, the great missionary church planter, gives to his younger associate in ministry, Titus, is that the way to counteract the pressure on this young church is to bring to them the truth of the Word of God. Speak to them sound doctrine, he says. It is the power of the Word of God. It is the power of the Scriptures that, able, that are able to combat the truth that seeks to wash over us. As for you, verse 1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Paul is going to talk here in chapter 2 about all kinds of practical virtues. All kinds of practical virtues here. And he's, and he's going to address a number of different constituents in the church. Right? He begins by talking about older men in verse 2. Then he moves to older women, verse 3, then younger women, then younger men, and finally to slaves. And so he spreads the truth out to all the different constituencies in the church. And he tells Titus here that he is to speak and to keep on speaking that which is fitting for sound doctrine, that which is appropriate, that which is consistent, that which is conspicuous or stands out with regard to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. We... 
The Greek behind that gives us the idea of healthy doctrine. That which is healthy for the church, that which will cause the church to grow, that which will enable the church to fight off the attack of false teaching. Titus is to speak these things that correspond to sound doctrine. Now, when we talk about sound doctrine, your, your thought, your, your mind might flash to the idea that we're talking about categories of theology, right? We want to talk about God and we want to talk about Christ and, and salvation and, and eschatology, what's going to happen in the end times and all those kinds of things. And those are indeed doctrine and they are sound doctrine. But in the context here, the sound doctrine that Paul is exhorting Titus to bring to them are a very practical level of virtue. He's saying, Titus, I want you to instruct the church on how they are to live in keeping with their profession of allegiance and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, sound doctrine works itself out in right living. Right doctrine brings right living. Bad doctrine brings bad living. And so Titus is to give them the good doctrine, the healthy doctrine, the sound doctrine that their lives might be lived correctly before God. And so he begins with the older men in the church, right? Verse 2, he starts out and he talks to them. Older men, he says, you are to be temperate. The word originally has the idea of, of abstaining from wine, but was, was expanded over time to be sober in judgment. That would be a better way to think of it. The older men, you are to be sober in your judgment. Beyond that, you are to be dignified. You are to be dignified. You ought to act in a way that is becoming of your age. People ought to look at you and be able to gauge based on the number of gray hairs in your head how you appropriately should act. You should not act like a young man when you have a head full of white hair. You are to walk in a, and live in a way that is dignified. How counter to our culture that is, right? The message that comes to us is you ought to look young and you ought to act young. That's what's appealing, the world tells us today. But the Apostle Paul says, if you are older, you ought to act older. And the older that you act is measured in the terms of being dignified and temperate beyond that sensible. Do you see it? They are to be sensible. Sound in faith, he says. Sound in love. Sound in perseverance. They are to be mature of character. This is what's to characterize an older man. And then Paul turns his attention here to older women. Verse 3. And this is really where I want to focus in with you this morning in the time that we have. He says, older women, likewise. Do you see it? Verse 3, likewise, in the same way as that which I have just instructed older men. They should have, the older women should have a healthy doctrine that manifests itself in a certain distinctive lifestyle. Well, what are these healthy doctrines? What is this lifestyle? What does it look like? As I said, there are 12 key characteristics. Twelve key characteristics that we can lift from these next couple of verses. Twelve key characteristics that, that define a woman of excellence. The first two of them are positive natures. Next two are negative in nature. And they are said to be the possession of the older woman. Verse 3. Following that, there are seven others given to us. And we will explore each of them in turn. And these are not said to be specifically uh, the possession of the older women, but they are the older women are to teach them to the younger women. And it seems obvious to me that you cannot teach that which you do not already first possess. And so I think by virtue of that, we are talking about a, a woman of excellence should be characterized by these 11 characteristics. Let's take a look at them. Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be, number one, reverent reverent in their behavior first characteristic reverent in their behavior this is an interesting word for us it is a a compound word it it is made up of of the 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 word harios which means holy and and also the word prepo which means uh, fitting or suitable same uh, same word translated fitting up there in verse one so the older women are to be reverent that is that they are be holy conspicuously so they are to be conspicuously holy. That is, that someone ought to be able to look at their life and see that it is a life of holiness. That is what is to characterize an older woman. They are to be seen as someone who is godly. When the congregation looks on, they should see this older woman and they should say she is a godly woman. She is not just a, she is not just a silly girl in an older woman's body. She is indeed a mature 
and godly woman. She is a woman whose life is no longer conformed to this world, right? Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. A reverent woman is a woman whose mind is been transformed and is being transformed to correspond to godliness, to put off worldliness. So number one, she is to be reverent in her behavior. Secondly, second key characteristic here is she is not to be slanderous. Verse 3. She is to be reverent in behavior and not a malicious, malicious gossip. Not a malicious gossip. And it's interesting here because uh, the word that Paul uses, translated here, gossip, is the word diablos, from which we get the word devil. Okay? She is not to be a devil in her speech. A woman of excellence is not to have lips that are used of the devil. The speech that comes from her mouth is not to be his tool. Over in Ephesians chapter 4 and and in uh, verse 29, the uh, Apostle Paul says there that we are to let no unwholesome word come out of our mouths, right? But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. That should be the characteristic of her speech. A woman of excellence, when she opens her lips and her mouth speaks, it ought to do people good. It ought to bless them. It ought to lift them up. It should not tear them down. You know, gossip is a dangerous sin. It is indeed one of the abominable sins of the Scriptures. God hates gossip. And gossip is the speaking to someone else about something that is not appropriate to pass on. It may be true, it may not be true, but it is not to edify, it is to tear down. You know, gossip is much like breaking open a feather pillow and then trying to recollect the contents. So much damage can be done with the tongue. A few weeks ago, we were moving bedrooms around, and uh, one of uh, one of the beds had a feather pillow or a feather topper over the mattress. It had uh, down feathers in it, and so as we were undoing the bed and taking the mattress off and taking the topper off and moving it around, I noticed that there were a number of feathers that had slipped out and stuck in the mattress. And so I was plucking them out and trying to throw them away, and I thought I got every single one of them. But you know, that was three weeks ago, and I still find little pin feathers, right, goose down around my house. Why? It's like gossip. It just, it gets out and it goes everywhere, and you'll be forever chasing it down and trying to collect it back up. A woman of excellence is not to be a malicious gossip. She is not to be a slanderous person. She is to speak that which is edifying, or she's not to speak at all. Third, characteristic a woman of excellence is to be sober a woman of excellence is to be sober it says nor enslaved to much wine you see it verse three nor enslaved to be much uh, to much wine she's not to be a drunkard simply put she's not to be under the influence of alcohol or other intoxicating substances these are not to be a part of her life she she must be one who is able to deal with the stress of life in a clear with a clear mind One who does not need to resort to chemicals in order to get through life. One who does not need to be medicated in order to be able to deal with reality. But she has her spiritual house in order that she is able to deal with that which comes to her by her reliance upon the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit within her life. She is not to be dulling her senses in order to cope with reality. She is to be sober. Fourth characteristic here. Teaching what is good, verse 3. Fourth characteristic of a woman of excellence is she is to be a teacher. She is to be a teacher. Now, this is a fascinating word here in the Greek. It is a compound word that is made up of the, of the words good and, and, um, and teaching. And most commentators believe the Apostle Paul created this word himself. It's used nowhere else in the New Testament, nor is it they can find it in classical Greek. It is a word that Paul made up. She is a good a teacher of good. She is a teacher of good. 
So a woman of excellence must be a teacher. And that raises, at least in my mind, some interesting questions. So let me, uh, since they interested me, let me um, impose them on you and ask some of these same questions, and perhaps you will find a level of interest in them as well. Now, we noted uh, when we first began this series back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, right, and in uh, verse 12, that the Apostle Paul prohibits the teaching of the Scriptures by women in the public setting of the church. And we spent some time, we looked at the context there, the statements are very very plain and very clear, and they roll into the requirements of elders and deacons in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And so we established the biblical understanding that the teaching ministry and Uh, belongs to the elders. It is a male uh, uh, ministry given that way by God. So the question that that, that rises in my mind is that if, verse 3, that older women are to be teaching what is good, in what way are the older women to be teachers? What kind of teachers are they supposed to be? If they've been forbidden the teaching office, what is it they're supposed to teach? And who is it that they are supposed to teach? And how is it that they are supposed to do it? Well, it says right here in the text, verse 4, that they may encourage the younger women. Do you see it? So immediately their teaching audience is made plain. The older women, the women of excellence, are to be teachers indeed. And the ones they are to be teaching are the younger women. The younger women. But what is it they're supposed to be teaching to them? Are they supposed to be uh, uh, teaching them verse by verse through the Scriptures? Is that what Paul is envisioning? That the older women would take out their Bibles and they would have a a bunch of younger women sit around at their feet and they would work through the Scriptures verse by verse and, and, and speak to them the way I'm speaking to you now? Is that what he's envisioning? Or is he expecting the older women to to sit down and instruct the younger women in the great doctrines of the faith? to teach them systematic theology, to begin with the theology of God and then work their way through. Is is that what it is that he is requiring? Well, the answers to these questions are right here in front of our eyes if you'll let your eyes but slip down to verses 4 and 5. The older women are to be teaching the younger women. That is their audience. And what it is they are to be teaching them, Paul doesn't leave for us to guess. He gives it to us very clearly. Very clearly. Verse 4 begins with what's called in the Greek a henna clause. It is a purpose clause translated that they may. Do you see it? That they may. They are to be teaching what is good so that or that they may encourage the younger women. Good teaching, which represents sound doctrine, is to be transmitted from the older to the younger women. And it is laid out by the Apostle here now in, in a series of seven attributes. We add these seven to the four we previously looked at and we get the 11 characteristics that I told you in this text make up what a woman of excellence is to look like. The idea that Paul is communicating here is that the older women are to train the younger women. They are to encourage the younger women. They are to teach the younger women. They are to call the younger women to be sensible with regard to their own spiritual duties. We are talking about discipleship. This is a discipleship-oriented passage. This is not a didactic passage where one person stands and and speaks and everyone else sits around and writes down notes. This is a life-on-life kind of passage where an older woman comes alongside a younger woman and helps her to learn these important Christian virtues. Beloved, this passage begins first in the home. This is a passage that originates in the home. And as it has been done well in the home, then it begins to move out wider than that. Who are the younger women with regard to an older woman? It would begin first in the home. It would be a mother with her daughters. It would begin with a mother and her own daughters. And as a mother begins to disciple her daughters in these things, she will influence the next generation for Christ. And then as those younger daughters grow and move outside the home, taking husbands for themselves, then she, the, the, the mother left in the home, would have time to begin to move out and work with other younger women. First having accomplished her purposes at home and then proving herself there, able to move out into the fellowship and give wider destruction and discipleship. I guess it's probably worth saying it again, that you have to possess it before you can pass it on, ladies. 
This has to be true of your own life first and then you will move it on. That's one of the reasons why the home is such a, such a good chemistry lab. Because it is there in the home that your, that your children see you as you truly are. We all have our Sunday faces, don't we? We can kind of wash it up pretty good and put a smile on it and hold it there for a couple of hours. But it is in the day-to-day grind of the home that the virtue it shows or the lack thereof is evident. Beginning in our homes, ladies, we are to teach the younger women to be devoted, fifth characteristic, to be devoted. They encourage the younger women to love their husbands. Do you see it? They are to love their husbands. Another compound word here. And Paul is, is using the Greek word uh, philos for, uh, for uh, love. And he is combining it with the word for husbands. They are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. And it's, and it's not the kind of love that... We're not talking about romantic love. Eros in the Greek. We're not talking about agape, the, the kind of, of, um, of deep love that, that's spoken of of God's love for us. We are talking about family love. We are talking about family love. They are, the older women are to teach the younger women that they are to have affection for their husbands, that they are to befriend their husbands, that they are to care for their husbands, that they are to be devoted to their husbands. The feeding and care of a husband. Is that a book title? It ought to be. Sound care and feeding of a husband. I think it is. In fact, I think I now remember who wrote it, so I'm not sure I want to recommend it to you, but... It's too bad. All the good titles go first. Well, the proper care and feeding of a husband is something that Paul says the older women are to pass on to the younger women. That's interesting. Because what that says to me is it doesn't come naturally. It's not a natural thing. It's not just implicit in being a woman. You know, you're, you're born a, 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 a girl, right? You're going to grow up to be a woman. Those natural uh, processes are going to take place. But the ability to do these things doesn't apparently come naturally. Because if it came naturally, there'd be no need for Paul to instruct older women to pass something on. And so there, there is a, there's the idea here that loving your husband doesn't come naturally to you, ladies. It doesn't come naturally. Not to truly do it, at least, the way the Apostle Paul would have you do it. And so what do you do if, if you're having trouble, if you're struggling with loving your husband as Paul would have you love your husband, as God through Paul would have you love your husband? What do you do? You do the same thing you do when you struggle in any other area of the Scripture. You begin to walk in obedience. You pray for God to help you. You ask the Spirit of God to energize you to do that which you know to be right. And you begin the process. You train yourself to be obedient to the Word of God. How do you train yourself to love somebody? Ever thought about that? How do you train yourself to love somebody? Well, here are some examples or, or some ways I think you can do that. First, you, you put their welfare beyond your own or above your own. You, you actively, consciously seek to put their welfare and their interests above your own. That means that you have to think about what's best for them. Your first thought has to be, what's best for them? This, by the way, applies, uh, gentlemen, to you as well. You know, you don't have to hook this morning, okay? And no sharp elbows in the ribs as we go, okay? We can make application. I just don't have time to make all the application points, but you can work at this out yourself, right? Teaching yourself to love somebody, putting their interests above your own, thinking about their interests first, putting their welfare first, praying for them, that God would, would uh, do something wonderful in their life. Doing things for them. Loving them in word and deed. This is how you train yourself to love somebody. Throw away the scorecard where you keep track of how many times you've loved them and how many times they've loved you. Okay, Throw out the scorecard. Do good for them. Now, by the way, lest we think that Loving your husband in this way is some huge and noble thing that you have done. Let me just remind you what the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Philippians chapter 2, okay? And there he is not writing to husbands for wives or wives to husbands. He's writing to the church at large, all of us. 
He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Wow. Wow. That's the requirement for me, for you, and for you, for me, and for you, for each other. That's the way we are to love each other. That's the basis of Christian love. We're to operate at that level. And so when Paul says over here in in, uh, Titus chapter 2 that the older women are to teach the younger women that they are to love their husband, he's not calling them to any higher standard than he has called every single believer to. We are to love at this kind of level, sacrificially. Jesus did not come to be served, right? But to what? To serve and to give His life a ransom for many. We're talking about dying to ourselves, to our own interests, to our own desires, to our own preferences, and setting someone else up as more important than we are. We are talking about loving like Christ loved. A woman of excellence is to be devoted. Devoted to her husband. Sixth. A woman of excellence is to be caring. She is to be caring. Again, in verse 4, encourage the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. To love their children. This is another compound word, and it's speaking about the same kind of familial love, family love. Younger women need to know how to, to love their children. They need to know how to care for their children. They need to know how to cultivate their children's spiritual growth. They have been entrusted to us, ladies. And raising them is very much our responsibility as mothers. It is not just dad's responsibility. It is our responsibility too. You've heard me say this more than one time. When we were young, I I don't remember how old I was now. 24, I think. 24 years old, we came home from the hospital with with the first, you know, with our oldest daughter, and she was not very big. And I turned her over upside down in every which way, looking for directions printed on the bottom of the box, and there just, there was nothing, nothing at all. And so we had to learn how to care for, how to love a child. And since she's not here this morning, I can say a very nice child that was easy to love, and, well, no, actually not, a child that cried a lot, right? <laughs> And was demanding. Now they call it colicky. We didn't even know what the word colicky meant. All we knew was this child cried a lot. But we were to learn how to love this little package that had been given to us. We had to become caring. Mothers have to become caring. And again, it means dying to self. Dying to self. Getting up in the middle of the night to feed that little one is dying to self. Changing diapers is dying to self. Dads can do a lot more of that. Dads today got it so easy with these disposable diapers, huh? You remember those cloth ones? Yeah, I remember them. We didn't have no diaper service either. Dying to self. A woman of excellence, number seven, is to be self-controlled. She is to be self-controlled. Verse 5, older women are to encourage the younger women to be sensible. To be sensible. The idea here is of, of mastery of oneself, curbing one's desires and impulses, having a sound and balanced judgment. It's the same word used up in verse 2 that older men have to be that way. They are to be sensible as well. It is to be a characteristic of maturity and age. And by the way, in the Bible, the Bible presumes or presupposes that age equals maturity. That's what's supposed to happen. You're not just supposed to grow old chronologically. You are supposed to grow old spiritually, too. You are to mature in the faith. That's the assumption. Woman of excellence is to be self-controlled. Eighth, eighth characteristic. A woman of excellence is to be pure, it says, verse 5. Do you see it? She is to be pure, that is, holy, modest, chaste, innocent. 
This is a, this is a word talking about specifically sexual purity. This is a word about sexual purity. She is to be sexually pure. That is talking about in her mind and in her behavior, in her speech, in her dress. It's all wrapped up together. There is to be no room for immodesty. There is not to be a, a desire to entice other men by, their, by the way they dress. There is not to be a desire to pursue after fantasies through reading materials or, or, or um, movies or any of those kinds of things. There is, there is to be no eyes for anyone else. Is all wrapped up into this. She is to be faithful to her husband. She is to be sexually pure. And young ladies, this is huge. This is huge as you grow up in this culture. We live in a culture that is absolutely drowning in sex. It is everywhere used and it is, and it is used in the most incredible and blatant ways. And so that pollution is constantly coming in. And so you must fight against it. Mothers, you must work with your daughters in these areas. You must help them to learn to dress modestly. It doesn't take somebody very long to figure out what gets noticed. Okay, it would be a rare young lady indeed who were to dress provocatively and not know that she's dressing provocatively. Okay, they know. There's an old song that says that city girls find out early how to open doors with just a smile. It can be done, ladies, and you know how it can be done. So you are to learn to be modest, chaste, pure, holy in your behavior, pure in body, soul, and mind. Ninth. Ninth characteristic is industrious. Industrious. A woman of excellence is a woman who is industrious. Workers at home. Workers at home is, a, is the English translation of the, of the Greek word that is given here. Devoted to home duties. That would be another way we could say it. Devoted to home duties. A woman of excellence is a woman who is devoted to the responsibilities and duties of her home. Probably no other passage of Scripture that I can think of is quicker to get me shot than this one. This is probably the most difficult passage to deal with, right? When it comes to the issues of our society and the roles of men and women. This is harder than the S word, which we will deal with just a little bit, okay? Workers at home. This is a difficult pill to swallow. This is a hard pill for people to take. All around us, society says, right, I can, I can bring home the bacon, I can fry it up in the pan, and I can do whatever else I can do. And I can smoke cigarettes and, well, you don't remember those ads, but, I mean, all of that stuff, right? So what is Paul talking about? What is he talking about? Is this a direct prohibition against a Christian woman working outside her home? Some would say that it is. I don't agree. I don't believe that that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. If he were to say that, there are other ways he could say it that would not be ambiguous. He could very clearly and directly make that statement, and he does not make that statement. And so that's not, I don't believe, what he is doing is prohibiting a Christian wife from working outside her home. But he is focusing in, he is narrowing in, he is driving the spotlight of God in on something that is very big, very important to deal with. And it's really sort of the underlying attitudes that are part of all of this. He is putting responsibility where it squarely belongs. Ladies, your household is your primary responsibility. All the way back to creation, right? Genesis 2, that Eve was created to be Adam's helpmate, his, one corresponding to him, one to help him in the task that God had given him to do. And so a part of that is the area of the home. It is your responsibility. And so let me just say it this way. Ladies, if your home is out of control, if your home is out of control because you work outside the home, then you need to cut back. You need to reduce the amount of time you are spending outside your home and focus it where your primary responsibility is inside your home. Now, that's an individual judgment call, isn't it? That's not something that anybody else can make for you. They can't say that so many hours a week outside the home, that's acceptable any more than that's not. That's not what the way he does it. It is a principle. 
It is a principle that is given here that we are to apply by the wisdom of the Spirit of God in our lives. Your home is your responsibility, ladies. And if your outside activities, and let me just bring it on down, if, even if your outside activities are not employment for pay, if your outside activities are causing your home to, to be less than God would have it to be, then you need to reduce your outside activities. You know, you could stay home. I'm, I'm going to go one more further than that. You could be home all day long and your home could be a mess. Okay? And then you are still in violation of what Paul is really driving after here. So if it's, if it's staying home and eating bonbons and watching soap operas, or if it's working too many hours, or if it's too much civic or community involvement, or running around after your kids' sports teams, or whatever it is that is causing your home to, to not be able to function as God would have it function in, a, in an orderly, harmonious fashion where love is what prevails, where there is a Christian atmosphere in which young lives are nurtured. If that is not your home, then there is something wrong, something's out of balance, something has to change. Husbands, fathers, this is Father's Day, right? Dads, this is your Father's Day message right now. All right, listen up. If you are the driving force, listen to me, if you are the driving force behind your wife's outside employment, then you need to think seriously about that. If you are the one who is pushing her out into the workforce, then you need to re-examine your priorities. You need to take a good, hard look at what you're doing that would cause her to have to leave the home to bring in additional income. Now, granted, we live in a difficult time. I I am fully aware of that. It is very hard to be a single-income family these days. There is no question about that. But, beloved, we also are absolutely in love with our toys. Amen? We are in love with our toys. We are in love with our lifestyles. We want to begin where our parents left off and move forward from there. We are not content to go back to where they started and then work our way up. We want to just, wherever mom and dad, whatever standard of living they got to, that's our jumping off point, right? And then we move forward from there. I can remember when we got married, my parents had a black and white television. And I thought, man, I don't want a black and white television. I want a color television. So we rolled our pennies and quarters until we bought a color television, you know. And now you kids today, you want a color television. No, I want a plasma TV. You know, it's every generation leveraging up the next one. Oftentimes... It is lifestyle choices that drive women into the workplace beyond that which they would desire in their own heart to do. One more toy is not a good reason to go get a job. It is not a good reason. You must be willing to examine your lifestyle and examine it under the scrutiny of the Word of God. Industrious, the Apostle says, a woman of excellence is industrious. Tenth, she is kind, verse 5. A woman of excellence is kind. Greek word here is typically translated good, but here it it does denote the idea of kindness. A, a, A mother at home devoted to her household and to the raising of her children, she is absorbed in the innumerable duties involved therein. And the self-giving that is involved. You know, moms, you know this. Everybody wants a piece of you, right? There is never a time to yourself, or at least not until everybody else goes to bed. Everybody wants a piece of mom. And so the reaction that we can, we can, can give in the flesh is we become irritable. We become grumpy. We become unkind. We become harsh. The demands are placed on us and, and we respond not with kindness, but with irritability. Dirty feet on the carpet suddenly become a major issue, right? Spilled milk on the kitchen floor is like a crisis that that explodes in the household and leads to all kinds of harsh words. Noise and confusion of little children get to the place where, you know, people just pop a cork. We're under so much pressure and most of it's self-applied. Most of it's self-applied. Ladies, you're to be kind at home. You're to be kind at home. 
Your children should, should want to bring their friends home to your house. They shouldn't fear. What kind of mood is mom in? I don't know what mood she's in, so I don't know whether I can bring anybody home or not because she may pop a gasket and embarrass the daylights out of me. Okay? I mean, we laugh. We laugh because uh, that's the way to relieve the tension, right? Your home should be a welcoming place, a kind place, a place of love, a place where your children want to bring their friends, particularly their unsaved friends. That can only be done if your life is balanced and in order. She's to be kind. Should be gracious, benevolent. That's the idea. Okay? Gracious, benevolent, kind, good. Leaven. The 11th characteristic. Verse 5. Being subject to their own husbands. There's the S word. In case you hadn't figured it out earlier. Okay? Being subject to their own husbands. Grammatically here, it's worth making this exegetical. Who said Amen. Bite your tongue. <laughs> Wait till I explain the grammar, and then you will understand why I say that, okay? <laughs> I'm going to make a grammatical point. You know, I don't want to get immersed in this, but it is worth noting. This is a present middle participle, okay? A present middle participle. What does it mean? The present tense of the verb says there is a continual action going on here. They are continually submitting themselves to their own husbands, Okay? And it, and it is in the, it is in the uh, middle voice which says that it is the woman's responsibility to do this. She is involved in this. It is a voluntary submission. That's the point. It is a voluntary submission, a continual voluntary submission. Hupatasso is the Greek verb. It means to line up under. It is a voluntary thing. Gentlemen, your wives are not to submit to you because you are over them, that you somehow can beat them into submission. Submission can only come voluntarily. One can only submit from their own heart. You can only submit to God because you want to, because you desire to do it. It's the same way here. They are to be continually submitting themselves, and notice this, to their own husbands. Do you see that? To their own husbands. There is not in Scripture anywhere a a general call for all women to be in submission to all men. That is an absolute misnomer. Wives are to be in subjection to their own husbands. No other man, no other man are they required by God to be in submission to. Their own husbands. Now let me add a couple of caveats here before you come see me afterwards. Within the context of the church, yes, You are to be in submission to the elders, but you all are to be in submission to the elders, the apostle says. So in the context of the church, yes, you're being in submission there. And ladies, if you are out in the working world, you are called to be in submission to your boss. Okay, Ephesians tells us that, that you are to be in submission to your boss. So there are those caveats. But there is no general call in Scripture that all women are to be in submission to all men. There is not a hierarchy going on, okay? It is within the context of the marriage relationship This submission is called for. And that, by the way, leads me to a warning, so let me just go ahead and give it to you. A potential area of conflict arises, ladies, when you work outside the home. Let me just make you aware of it. Maybe you've already become aware of it. You are called biblically to be in submission to your own husband. You are also called to be in submission to your employer. The problem that can come to you is when your employer wants one thing and your husband wants something else. Okay, that's when the struggle comes. You may have an employer that wants you to do this and you have a husband that wants you to do that. Now, what do you do? Now, what do you do? You're called into submission into two authorities. How do you balance such things out? Be careful. Be careful what you do. Do not allow yourself to be drawn into these kinds of traps. Notice the end of verse five here. subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Do you see that? Purpose clause again. So that the word of God may not be dishonored, literally blasphemed. So that the scriptures are not blasphemed. What is he talking about? There is a A woman who professes allegiance to Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior 
and says that the Scriptures, uh, the Word of God and the ruling authority in her life, who then lives in an unsubmissive way to her own husband, is a walking contradiction. She is a walking contradiction. There is a spiritual disconnect in her life. And that spiritual disconnect, by the way, opens up the gospel, Paul says, to insult and to slander. Blasphemed. The unbelieving world looks at it and says, well, you say this, but you do this. So much for your God. Particularly, by the way, ladies, unbelieving husbands. If you are married to an unbelieving husband, this is huge. Your unsubmissiveness to your unbelieving husband will only push him further from the gospel. You know, we would like the world to judge Christianity based on its truthfulness, right? On its doctrinal content. But that's not how the world judges. The world judges it by its effect on the life of its inherents. Those who profess to follow Jesus Christ, the world looks on and says, Well, show me your Christ. Don't tell me all this stuff. Show it to me. You say you have faith? Show me your faith and show it to me in a changed life. Show it to me in a changed life. Ladies, you can undercut the whole ministry of your husband. Your husband's an elder. You can wipe out his ministry. You can invalidate his ministry. You can cause it to come of to little or not by how you conduct yourself in the body of Christ. It's huge. It's huge. The spotlight is on you. The spotlight is on you. What is an elder's wife to be like? Reverent. Holds her tongue. Sober-minded. Devoted to her husband and her children. Self-controlled. Chaste. Kind. Submissive. And involved in the lives of other young women. This is God's standard for His church. And when we live at that level, we beautify the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that God would grant us the grace to do so. Let's pray.